He who jumps into the void owes no explanation to those who stand and watch. Those who stand and watch must explain why they refuse to embrace the void. I find this void quite calming, actually. It's like, this time the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it. It's like I'm in a black void, trying to reach the new story. This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 112 of Embrace the Void, where the Ukrainian-flavored schadenvoid is in full bloom. I am your host, Aaron, and my guest this week joins me for a fun chat about martial arts, politics, and their unfortunate intersection in the form of Joe Rogan. So there's a lot going on here. Uh, enough warm-ups. Let's get wrestling. My guest this week is Sam Yang, a fellow devotee of philosophy and other martial combats and host of the Southpaw podcast, which I think is a really great study of the intersection of sports and leftist philosophy. So I'm I'm excited to have him on. Sam, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello. (laughs) Whenever (laughs) Whenever I think of void, I think I already told you this, but I think of that line from Avatar Legend of Korra. Okay. You know that no. let go your earthly yeah let go your earthly tether enter the void empty and become the wind. Oh, that's a good one. I'm going to steal that for a future invocation. I'm not a big uh airbender. Um so I I don't know that show as well. I need to put it on my list. I, I know that it's really good and everything, but uh I haven't gotten to that one yet. How dare you? I know there's too much. <laughs> there's too much content. Um, so speaking of, let's, let's make some more content. Um, so we share a lot of interests, it seems like, which does make it a little challenging to start. So I figured we'd start on the less combative end of things and talk about martial arts a little bit. What is your background in martial arts and what sort of attracted you to the martial arts that you prefer? Uh, so, uh, I started martial arts at six. It began with Taekwondo, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. a very common one, a very (laughs) suburban one. Mm Mm-hmm. Then from there, I've trained continuously for 34 years, but I switched arts a lot. Um, Karate, judo, sambo, wrestling in high school, boxing, kickboxing. So I was never domain specific about martial arts. Even initially as a kid at six, I was never, uh, my art is the best Taekwondo sectarian, you know, Mm -hmm. I was like, I was like Ash from Pokemon. I had to catch them all, uh-huh. meaning I want I wanted to learn every martial art. So even today, I watch and study lots of different martial arts. I read a lot of different things about what kind of philosophies uh, people took to the martial arts, what their intentions were in creating them. But as far as a class environment, I mostly do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. And uh, as busy as I am, and with my body constantly falling apart from the years of martial arts, <laughs> I can barely, I can barely do that enough for my liking. Mm-hmm. But, but why that's the one I mostly do is simple. It's the one that's the most fun for me, and and that's very important now, especially now. And I also get a lot of community out of it. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that's something common to a lot of sportive grappling arts, like mm-hmm. wrestling, judo, and. BJJ, the the physical intimacy breeds community. Mm-hmm. Are there particular parts of the BJJ, the uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu stuff that you find particularly fun? Like, do you really like locks, or do you like uh, mat work, or throws, or is there what what really attracts you to it? It's the problem solving aspect of it. Mm-hmm. I think you know, in the early UFCs, when people first saw it, they didn't understand what was going on, and that that thing that is just even at face value really hard to understand because other people didn't say that about the other arts that were in the first ufc the karate guy the, mm-hmm. even the sumo guy you 
you understood the intent. You understood what they were trying to do. Maybe we were prepped by movies or pro wrestling or whatever. Mm-hmm. But Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu just kind of looked like they there's some chaos and then somebody's tapping. What happened? And hmm. even to somebody who trains all the time, it's still kind of like that because it's constantly progressing and getting more complicated and more complicated. And so the fun part is um, trying to solve it trying to solve all these puzzles so mm-hmm. a lot of there's a lot of crossover of people who do like bouldering and brazilian jiu-jitsu hmm. a lot of brazilian jiu-jitsu people i know boulder and vice versa and i know a lot of times when they work on something they call it a problem so it's the same kind of mentality is that you look at something and you see all the handholds and footholds and you're like okay how do i get from here to there and you're trying to figure out how to bend your body to get there yeah and brazilian jiu-jitsu really overlaps well with that idea that makes a lot of sense. Uh, of the other sort of Pokemon that you've caught, are there ones in particular that you really have a, a soft spot for? Um, you know, when I was younger, like um, in my early teens, uh, these types of styles and martial arts were really like fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, you, you become like a devotee of styles. And I think that is a crossroad everybody crosses. So, So if you got to martial arts later in life, let's say in your 50s, you're doing that now. Mm-hmm. But rather than styles, I, I, I think more about training environments now. Hmm. I, think about, I think about culture. I think about the training environments, the cultures per, of different gyms, perhaps different styles. Um, you know, I'm not so much interested in you know, who is the best, whose dad can beat up whose dad, you know, like mm-hmm. the, the alpha male kind of mentality that that is the juvenile part of your early years of martial arts. Yeah. Now I just want to chill. That makes sense. And I want to talk about the culture um, in a second, though I am, like, curious, Are is there, not not to, like, prove that you're the best or something, but are, are there other specific martial arts that you'd be curious to see what it was like to go up against someone like that, um, particular, preferably in a, a VR kind of situation where you don't have to actually <laughs> suffer the physical consequences? <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, like like I was kind of uh, explaining before, I don't even have that impulse anymore. Okay. I think I really did. I, I know, actually, to, to your VR analogy, like years ago, I used to think about that. If we could program like, you know, algorithmically, like these programs or these machines, teach them a style and then see what would happen if they went up against each other or we were in these VR suits and, and it was purely if then physicality was completely even then just based on techniques of different arts, what would, what would it look like? Mm -hmm. But now I can't even remember why I cared about that. Okay. Fair enough. So let's talk about the culture then, if that's what you're particularly concerned with, what do you, um, what kind of culture are you looking for in martial arts and what do you feel like is – do you feel like there are different cultures for different schools of martial arts or is it really just like school by school, how that works out? So let's – let me start with as far as like the institution or, mm-hmm. or the, the gym, dojo, academy setting. The thing I've been thinking about is uh, a lot, and I haven't fully worked it out, but just putting a lot of thought about like what would be the ideal training scenario. So instead of even just looking at what already exists, how can we create something new in a way that is much more positive and much more democratic? And 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 as, especially for me and people like me, what would be our ideal training scenario that would promote? Uh, the best culture. So instead of looking at where it already exists, why not try to create something that creates the culture that you want? Mm-hmm. So I've been I've been thinking about instead of the uh, the traditional school model, what about a club like a member owned club or some nonprofit model mm-hmm. that's like volunteer and community run? Then to your point, then you could have volunteers or staff of like a bunch of different styles and they could come and work together. You know, like when you have a volunteer kitchen, it's like whoever knows how to make whatever dish is whatever you're making. Right. So what's taught is based around who's available to teach Hmm. rather than doing it the other way around. And and especially when there's nobody doing this as their livelihood. And it's just about volunteers and you just need people to teach. I think from that limitation, something beautiful can grow out of it. Hmm. But but a community like that, I think it has to be ex- explicitly leftist and inclusive because especially in martial arts, 
it can easily turn into a strongman authoritarian shit show. Okay. <laughs> you feel like you, you see that I, happen sometimes? I've seen it happen tons of times. And I've, I've had so many people tell me about uh, that happening at their own school. And, and uh, this idea of a club isn't that revolutionary. These sorts of clubs existed here in the U.S. in the past, like mm-hmm. especially health and fitness clubs before the 50s and more recently judo and boxing clubs. Uh, before they got killed by the neoliberalism of Taekwondo, UFC, and BJJ. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Um, do you feel like, uh, I mean, so let's talk about the strongman sort of caricature of certain people who get involved in, I mean, like the Cobra Kai, right? Let's bring it bring it back to all of our childhood and classics and all the important things in life. Um you know, do you feel like that is a, a pervasive problem that, like, there are a couple of groups who, like, everyone knows about who are, like, particularly um, sort of black hat, dark sidey kind of um, sweep the leg in their approach? <laughs> or, like, how, how do you feel like it, it actually breaks down in the community as you've experienced it? I think it's not always that martial arts creates the community. It reveals the community and then uh, after it reveals it, it acts like a steroid to the community. Mm. So it takes what's there, reveals it, and then strengthens it. Mm-hmm. So to that point about Korbakai or the dark side of martial arts, um, martial arts can sometimes be an extension of especially like survivalism or this Mad Max shit has to fan libertarianism, uh-huh. like xenopho- xenophobic paranoia. Right. Yeah, because it's empowering of the individual, right, in some sense. And so, like, with that can come the feeling of, like, I can protect myself, so I don't want, I don't need a system or I don't want a system that, like, is going to limit me by protect, and therefore, thereby protect a bunch of other people or something like that. Yeah. And also uh, fear, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of times, mm, yeah. conservatism also is, is an extension of fear. Martial arts can be an extension of fear. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. So. So rather than specific gyms or specific styles that lend itself to this, I, I think more about um, the level of obsession martial artists can have with self-defense. Okay. That's very telling. And then if that's the teacher, then that could create an environment and kind of filter in more people like that. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, I think like a lot of us come to martial arts probably partly because i mean like even when you said um you know because of fear maybe there isn't necessarily something bad about that we shouldn't like say you know like some people come to martial arts because they get bullied and they want to like be able to defend themselves more or something like that or they want to feel more self-confidence or something even if they never end up using it to defend themselves uh and it's it then it then it's a matter of sort of luck right in terms of whether their teacher sort of directs that that fear in a healthy direction or an unhealthy direction yeah so the strength and also the weakness of martial arts culture is it is top down from the instructor Mm -hmm. or the leaders right even if there's one one instructor and they have a bunch of higher belts or black belts or or teachers uh student teachers that creates the environment and, and it does spread to everybody else and because everybody looks up to them as the role models yeah which until you create your bottom-up system that you'd like where you know it's more i mean i I mean like and i wonder given the nature of martial arts could it ever really totally get away from that like i mean you could create a more democratic system where you have a rotation of teachers and you know they they teach in more progressive kinds of ways but you're still probably gonna need that kind of the same thing is true with like academia where you still need like someone sort of kind of lecturing their way through the really hard material and then, you know, like conveying that material through practice with people. Um, so I guess it, it puts a lot of burden on people who care about these communities to be good teachers, right? To step up and, and do that kind of teaching work. Yeah. And even uh, surprisingly, surprisingly, right? Like politically, I know people who are very much about, you know, bottom up, just decentralized, flat democracy. But then if you talk to them about martial arts, they're like, sometimes they change their tune. It's like, well, uh, you know, I want a formal class setting with an instructor. They do kind of want, mm-hmm. they make an exception mm-hmm. for martial arts. Mm-hmm. But I don't even know if it's because um, they thought about it and it's like martial arts needs a separate way to do things or it's just, uh, 
ingrained is in that in, because they came up doing martial arts mm-hmm. is internalized and and that is something they're not 100% ready to challenge yeah the way that we get sort of locked into certain kind patterns of behavior in certain environments and so that environment gets coded as being that kind of structured um situation um i'm curious and you said you know you you don't necessarily think that you know like one style is overrun with a particular kind of individuals but do you ever like catch yourself stereotyping folks politically or uh you know like based on what you see in their behavior or in their martial arts style and and like do you think that that's fair do you think it's ever accurate no, I think there's definitely truth to it. I think you can. Okay. <laughs> because like I said, and I'm, I'm probably going to say this more than once, but martial arts is very revealing. And and you'll hear uh, mixed martial artists say that about why they fight, because it reveals so much about themselves and others. And there is truth to that. And sometimes what it reveals is an asshole, you know, <laughs> or, mm-hmm. or it reveals, you know, different types of personality traits that we may or may not be um, ready to accept. But uh, the reason why also style is not a, a term that applies anymore because you you have schools that are like these right wing reactionary schools that doesn't even have a style they just say it's a self defense school mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. they they you you see a much more branding like of umbrella terms like what how would you categorize Krav Maga you can't it's more of like a philosophy right mm-hmm. so I think you can um, categorize things not necessarily by like karate or kung fu I think those are like outdated models but a lot of it based around like the spectrum of self-defense. Mm-hmm. Like if a white guy is overly obsessed with self-defense as an instructor, he might have some very problematic worldviews. Like, uh-huh. I don't know how many, I don't know how many instructors you've had or how many different martial arts you've done, <laughs> uh-huh. but um, and I'm doing a bonus episode on Theodore Adorno, Adorno's uh, fascism personality test. Oh yeah. And, and, and have if you've done enough martial arts, yeah, you might know some instructors oh, know. that will yeah, check off sure. every every box of that of that questionnaire, you know. And I've been in so I've been in th- schools where there were like two really high up black belt instructors with opposite personality types. Like one was the very hippie, open, sherry loving type, and the other was like full on, um, you know, dominant um, narcissistic personality type. Yeah, I, I've seen that too. Yeah. And uh, sometimes you're like, oh, okay, we take a snapshot. I was there for a year or two years or, or a couple months and it's like, okay, they somehow figured it out. But every school I hear of, I try to pay attention to it indefinitely until it closes. Mm, mm-hmm. And also even schools I used to be a part of, I try to pay attention. And so I've been around and looked at it long enough where those types of situations eventually ends up a lot of times in an ugly divorce where the school splits up, uh-huh. half the students go one side, half the students go with another side. I've had that personally happen to me where I had to pick like three different times. Yep. I've seen that. I've definitely schools, seen that happen so. as well. Cause you know, teaching martial arts, I do think attracts a certain, certain set of personality types. Not all personality types fit into that range, but like certain individuals, who, who do like that power and do like being at the top of those kinds of pyramids and are dedicated enough to like work their way up to the top. Um, and then once they get there, they have some amount of physical capacity to back up their particular claims, uh, hoping in theory, you know, if they've actually practiced. Um, and yeah, I do, you know, it's sort of, it's a similar conversation in a lot of ways to the like conversation about who gets drawn to being a police officer and like how there can be you know, I think I'll get canceled on the internet for saying this, but I think there can be good police officers. Um, but at the same time, it does often attract that type A personality. Um, something else you mentioned there that I wanted to actually dig in a little bit on that I think was interesting is you you sort of you're, you're pushing back on some of the traditional accounts of how we categorize different martial arts, different schools, and things like that. Do you have? an account at this point of like, do you think there are important distinctions between certain kinds of martial arts as hard style and soft style still a meaningful distinction, for example? Um, no, I don't think it's meaningful. And that's just my personal opinion. But the reason why I say that is because here, especially here in the U S and really like most people in the world are not training the martial art in the motherland of the martial art, right? We're so remote and removed from the original source. So then the culture and uh, the philosophy and a lot of 
a lot of a lot about the meaningful ways that is taught is is based around what informed the teacher, how that teacher grew up, where mm-hmm. where they grew up, what kind of beliefs they have. And so each school then is more indicative, not of the style, but of the personality and the beliefs of each individual teacher. So like, because in the past, I used to think, okay, you know, soft styles, that just means, you know, like hippie, open, very soft, kind, tenderhearted, or mm-hmm. tender-minded type of people. Right. And I've met a lot of people who do the so-called soft style who are also like big time Trump loving, you know, <laughs> gun loving, you know, fascist types. So uh, it, it, that would be, it would be very weird to push hands with someone like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think a lot of it is about the individual teachers because like if you, if I wanted to, you wanted to, if actually a listener wanted to open up a school tomorrow and they had the money, there's nothing stopping them. Right. Uh huh. Yeah. So that sure. lack of barrier to entry creates a lot of, uh, uh, different types of methodologies that are hard to categorize and pinpoint Mm -hmm. and pin down just by style. It's easier to me to base it around personality types than it is about the style. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was curious to ask you this later, but since since it's come around to this, right. (laughs) Is there, is there anybody from the intellectual dark web who you would particularly spar for charity? (laughs) Since we're talking about politics uh, and, and uh, martial arts at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, like sparring is a very intimate thing. You know, you, you create this bond with that person. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure if I trained with you, we did some pushing hands. We'd afterwards, you know, we'd feel a lot closer to each other. And I don't know if I want to necessarily be closer to anybody <laughs> in the intellectual dark web. It's fair. You know, but but what I would like to do is like take, you know, not that they would necessarily agree. But if we're talking about this fantasy scenario to take one of them on as a student, right. And then teach them and bring them up in the art the right way. You know, and a lot of times when you're teaching somebody, you're like raising them Uh up. So (laughs) teaching them to bow on and off the mats, you know, teaching them how to tie their belts, how to fold the gi, how to line up like everybody else, teaching, putting them in an environment where nobody cares how much money you have Mm -hmm. or what you do for a living and may never ask you the whole duration you're there. And, um, and in that type of environment, I've seen a lot of like angry men where all they needed was an authority figure to just tell them, you know, that'll do. I'm proud of you. You did a good job. You know, that's, I feel so I feel so ashamed because like that's such a Miyagi perfect answer. My answer is like Ben Shapiro. I want to throw Ben Shapiro around and I feel bad now because I yeah, your your answer is much better. Well done. No, no, especially like somebody like Ben Shapiro. I could I can imagine him uh, in that type of situation where you're like, that'll do. I'm proud of you. And he he might just like start bawling and that's all he ever needed. And he stops the, the podcast. He, he shuts everything down. That would be a huge public service if you could work that out. <laughs> I, I'd be thoroughly impressed. Um, so let's talk politics since we're here now, right? You started Southpaw, your podcast, amongst other reasons, you say, to counteract the effects of Joe Rogan on your community. Um, was there a specific event? That made you realize that the world needed this kind of corrective? Or did you just have like Joe Rogan recommended to you one too many times and you just snapped or like what happened? <laughs> All right. So if we're going to get into Joe Rogan, right, okay. this is like one of one of those topics that I have a lot to say about. Right. So we're, we're going to open this can of worms. OK, I don't but, think um, I've actually ever, no, I've like, ever I don't think I've ever talked about Joe Rogan on the show before. So this is going to be the so first time we will get canceled for this particular issue. So then there's a lot of catching up to do. And and yeah, his fans, they're, they're scary. But um, and, and, and it wasn't like I was introduced to him. I've been aware of him since episode one of his podcast, because uh, being in the L.A. martial arts community, training Brazilian jiu-jitsu. You knew him if you trained back then. And also, he used to be very involved with uh, there was just a limited handful of martial arts message boards, and he was active on there every day. So a lot of people back then got to talk to him a lot. So you interacted with him back then? Yeah. So that's the thing, right? A lot of people who defend him the most are the people who got to him later on, and the people who are most critical are the ones who are aware of him for the longest time. Oh, interesting. So how Southpaw came about it came from a text group. You know, a lot of people are using text to like their own informal 
uh, message boards. So I had a text group with some friends who were into combat sports. And and you can't talk about combat combat sports, unfortunately, without talking about Joe Rogan. And even more so several several years ago when he was like the only game in town as far as a show that talked about it. Hmm. And I mean, I mean, through MMA, he became the most powerful voice on the Internet. And a WWE Hall of Famer is now the president. So it boggles my mind how people dismiss the power of MMA and pro wrestling that those things have on the political discourse. Good point. So it's not just so it's not just my my community, my martial arts community. It's now the world. The world is affected by Joe Rogan and and Donald Trump and pro wrestling and MMA. And as a lefty martial artist and uh when I when I say pro wrestling, I consider that part of combat sports. Mm-hmm. The 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 politics of today makes me just feel bad because you you feel part partly like your your community is responsible for it hmm. because like I said, there was such an MMA and pro wrestling influence. So, um, like for instance, when New Atheism met MMA or when Sam Harris met Joe Rogan, that's when the IDW was born, the Intellectual Dark Web. Hmm. Interesting. Why is it? Why it's is it that it, Joe Rogan was so sort of the only game in town? Were there just like no other? Are, are there other martial arts podcasts that have filled that space, or is it still like a sort of mostly empty space? You feel like? No, now it's, it's slowly starting to change, and there's other martial arts websites and 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 podcasts that talk about these things, but also bring on the guests that you want. Mm-hmm. Okay, fair enough. So let's let's talk about Joe Rogan, right? What is what is it about his particular strain of whatever that you feel like is problematic and that sort of has led folks astray within that community? So let's stick with the IDW, right? And this mm-hmm. is probably now, especially as a philosopher, right, is uh, probably a pain in your butt as well. Yeah. But bit. it's the, when, when, when MMA met new atheism, it's, it's when this I'm smarter than you met this i can also kick your ass mentality Hmm. which also turned into i can beat you in a debate because i'm mentally tougher than you so even if they don't train themselves what they got from that is that they now believe they have the fighter's mindset that that the fighter's mindset is a feature of their tribe the idw now going to pro wrestling right when white nationalism met pro wrestling came the weirdo politics of the alt-right but specific to the alt-right, there was a third ingredient, which was anime. But you can actually <laughs> trace all of this back to the message boards, the crossbreeding of these niche groups. Right. So so to answer your first question about how Southpaw came to be, um, you know, all this, we were pretty fed up and we were fed up with Rogan's hand and all this. And I think it was like uh, my friend Paul and I, we were listening to the newest Rogan episode. And I can't remember who Rogan had on. And they talked about politics and his take was like way off. Then they mm-hmm. talked about MMA, which he often talks about with non-MMA people. And his take about MMA was also way off. But in the same way that that he was off about politics. And that was the last straw. And uh, that's why we started. Okay, fair enough. So the, the, so the world is starting to get sick of his political hot takes, right? But the MMA world had to had to deal with a shit commentary for way longer. So for someone who's never heard, and I've actually never have listened to a Joe Rogan episode, could you explain to folks, like, what what is the Joe Rogan shtick? What do you feel like are the main points that you can expect to hear in any given Joe Rogan episode, stuff like that? Well, the Joe Rogan experience, the, <laughs> the podcast is called, right? Uh-huh. And I think he named it like that on purpose because it's hard to pin down. And and I will give it credit for that, that it is unusual. It is, it is different from a lot of shows, even today, in that it's it it harkens back to Napster and this like early days of the internet, where before, right, the way we listened to music was you would have these playlists or a CD or something, and you just listen to songs in a certain genre, mm-hmm. right? But then with Napster, you downloaded like thousands of songs, and then you didn't know what you wanted to listen to because there's too many songs and too many genres, and you would just put it on then random shuffle. Uh-huh. And then so you would just get songs from all these different categories, right? Mm-hmm. And I think Joe Rogan being a fan of mixed martial arts, which is also similar to that idea of Napster, mm-hmm. of like all these different styles and uh, techniques of martial arts just randomly blending together. 
that was the appeal of his show is that you couldn't say it was an MMA show because he would have on people that had nothing to do with MMA, right? But uh-huh. then he would also have episodes where he just talked about the latest UFC fights. So I think, so that is still today's show. You might have an, you know, you could have a, a reactionary Joe Rogan fan who cares nothing about MMA and he might have to sit through a, uh, through an MMA episode or the way I think a lot of people listen now is instead of listening to every single episode, Mm -hmm. they just look at the description and the topic and then just base it around that. If, if the topic sounds compelling to them. And, and so that is what you get with the Joe Rogan experience, this randomness, this Napster style, like random shuffle of topics and interviews. But what they all have in common is this anti social justice lean and uh this kind of strongman simplistic version of not only martial arts but of politics and the world okay interesting where do you feel like that anti-social justice lean comes from is it just sort of an anti-feminist lean initially um is it is it just the same kind of authoritarian personality stuff emerging in a different form I think uh, for him, maybe it needs to go back to his childhood. Okay. You know, I don't know. Okay, I wasn't sure but if I think he had, like specifically it, it, it talked about events that had like driven it or something. Well, he has talked about how he was a very angry young man and how he could have easily seen himself becoming part of the alt right, right? Mm-hmm. And this is where marijuana and DMT is so important for him because it's like, oh, I was that angry guy, but then I found marijuana, I found Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I found DMT, and these are things that chilled me out. But then you could also argue that he's still that angry guy who just happens to take those things, you know? There's a guy. You ever watch the show Letter Kenny? Yeah. Uh, there's a new season coming out soon. And there's a character on it, Joint Guy, who's like a <laughs> pro fighter guy who is like smoking weed all the time. And I am 100% certain that that is based on Joe Rogan because he is, he is this oh, kind sure. of libertarian, you know, get high with Elon Musk um, and talk about personal freedom kind of guy and that's why it seems like he dovetails in with the intellectual dark web kinds of folks um so what what part of this shtick do you feel like is the most corrosive or concerning that you feel like you want to push back on is it the like the toxic masculinity stuff is it the libertarian stuff is it uh all of the above kind of situation it relates to what we were talking about earlier about you know sparring ben shapiro Mm -hmm. and why i i can imagine him in a class scenario um crying if you just made him feel of value because uh i think the scarier thing about joe rogan and the bigger umbrella thing that combines all those different takes like toxic masculinity to authoritarianism to libertarianism all those things is this idea that they all espouse and especially joe rogan is this uh moral ethics of what would a mean dad do in any situation Hmm. you know whenever you're suffering whenever something's bad going on the advice they want to give you is like what would a mean dad do and that's the thing you should do so your suffering is just a way for you to learn something or Uh or you know you shouldn't help them they have to learn this hard way clean clean your room uh, empathy yeah 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 it's all this mean dad stuff and and i think that's what's dangerous and i think that's the thing that he's he often uses this idea of evolution and uh, genetics and nature to mm-hmm. def- defend tradition and and uh, what is conventional. Mm-hmm. And so he he frames this mean dad ethics as being natural, that is just part of genetics and nature, when it's just his belief. And and right. so he frames it in a way that you shouldn't even question it because it's just innate. It's the default. And it's not the default. And I think that's the message I want to especially send, that that is not the default. That is your choice. That is maybe a legacy, a vestige of the way things were, but it's not necessarily meaning that is our destiny or the way it has to be or the way it was meant to be. Yeah, I definitely buy that. And we've talked several times on this show about how evolutionary psychology is used as a sort of scientific covering for personal history biases preferences that people want to say are just the way that things are and therefore should be or something like that so um i can definitely 
get on board with that. So maybe let's talk a little bit less about his his particular worldview, a little bit more about your alternative that you're trying to put forward. What would you say are your personal political biases, tribal allegiances, um, preferences, etc.? How would you, how do you how do you put yourself forward to others? I'd say I'm left of liberal. Okay. I, I, a lot of times I just call myself a lefty martial artist. So I'm hospitable to a lot of groups and ideas that are left of liberal without explicitly being a part of any of them. So I guess this is one thing I have in common with Rogan because to his credit, he is a lifelong martial artist also. So, mm-hmm. but it's not a Joe Rogan thing. It's a martial arts thing, especially modern martial arts, where a lot of martial artists today have been influenced by Bruce Lee, mm-hmm. MMA, and and Taoism. So they don't want to ne- necessarily identify with any style. So style in this case can also mean political party or tribe, because the idea is if you identify with any of these things, then you become crystallized or fixed where you stand, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Bruce, Bruce Lee has said a lot of this kind of stuff as well. And Bruce Lee also is a complex figure because a lot of like right-wing reactionary people like him as well. So it's mm-hmm. not like I, I am going to die on a hill for Bruce Lee or something, but, but all of those things inform me. So to that end, uh, and I know we've talked about this, you and I before, um, off uh off mm-hmm. the podcast you know whatever right. however you want to refer it <laughs> in but the real natural in the real world yeah <laughs> but that people tend to naturally be risk averse right mm-hmm. uh fearful so uh thus they tend to be conservative and as a Taoistic martial artist i have to lean left mm-hmm. just to counteract that and during times like now i have to lean even further left so I find uh, leftists trying to move the Overton window to be deeply Taoistic. That makes sense. So let me let me push back a little bit here, though, on okay. your, you know, you mentioned left of liberal. So I, I, you and I have had some back and forth on this as well off, off the podcast about folks like Ezra Klein and the distinction between liberal or neoliberal and leftists. And I guess I... I remain a little skeptical of this distinction, and I'm curious how much you, how much weight you're still putting on this particular distinction. You feel like when understanding the political spectrum, I think you know a lot of people didn't, myself included, thought it was all the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. And if when you think about it in a spectrum, uh, the easiest way I explain it is I'm a liberal who is deeply informed by martial arts. And so what is martial arts, right? There's a lot of universalism. There's a lot of collectivism, mm-hmm. right? Um, there's a lot of martial artists, even on who are politically right wing, who think that you should never profit off of martial arts, that it should always be nonprofit, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I still hear this argument all the time. So there's this like deeply anti-capitalistic aspect to it. And on top of that, and initially the way martial arts came to the U.S. was through American GIs like judo and karate in particular, but now those GIs are long dead, right? So a a new class of people have entered martial arts. A a lot of people from different countries who've seen American empire, who've seen what American foreign policy looks like. Mm -hmm. So being politically liberal, plus this idea of universalism, collectivism, anti-capitalism, plus an interest in American foreign policy, plus a critique of American empire, Mm-hmm. I think that's what literally is a leftist. It is a liberal plus all those things that I, I just mentioned. And I think how I added those things came a lot from my martial arts. That's, that makes a lot of sense. And it's it's funny the way you describe the like no make money account of martial arts. I, I agree that I've seen some of that uh, as well. And it's sort of it reminds me of the way that the, that in philosophy they talk about Socrates versus the sophists. I don't know if you're familiar but like Socrates, you know, cl- you know never took any money for going around and bothering everyone and trying to make them argue about definitions, but he would always sort of poke fun at the sophists who would make money by teaching rhetoric and these kinds of things. And I think you know Often the te- you know the the paying the teaching for profit is often viewed with suspicion because it's it's the thing that people who don't really understand the art or don't care about it or something are doing 
Uh, that's the real reason that they're doing it or something. And that it often goes hand in hand with not actually knowing anything or being particularly good at the thing. And I'm curious, do you feel like martial artists who are in this world of, like, put up or shut up a little bit, um, do you feel like they're a little less susceptible to con men in that kind of sense or sophists? Or do you feel like they're just as susceptible as everyone else and it's mostly just luck if you end up under the sway of, of good people or bad people, you know, like less good people? Yeah, I think they're just as uh, susceptible. I think, you know, if if anything, they can use more motivated reasoning. Mm. Um, I think like, a lot of my ideas, what I just said about martial arts, those are verifiably within martial arts. Everything I talked about with collectivism, uh, with universalism, mm -hmm. but it's only in there if you think about martial arts. So it's not just doing the martial art is going to make you see these things. You have to do the martial art and then think about the martial art. Because it's never explicitly taught. I mean, East Asian martial arts are literally communist. But you wouldn't know that unless explicitly told by somebody. But nobody will explicitly tell you that. You have to actually just think about it. And I think, I think only the people who are willing to think about martial artists, or, or, or I should say, only the martial artists who are willing to think about martial arts will make those conclusions and draw those conclusions. But otherwise, doing it, just doing it, Mm -hmm. It's not a panacea. And if anything, just doing it without thinking about the thing you're doing can make you even more susceptible to snake oil uh, salesmen. And, and people like Jordan Peterson is super popular in martial arts. Self-help gurus are super popular in martial arts. So it tells you how right. easily susceptible martial artists can be. Yeah. And like I said, I also wonder, I agree that there is some of that universalism, but I also, there also, it feels like is often the kind of oligarchic school style of martial arts where i mean coming from a tradition where people would only pass the true styles down to their family members and like would refuse to tell, teach anyone outside of the chen village or something like that like um you know that that has maybe changed a little bit over time but it does still feel like there's this mindset of i have to uh what one of my teachers called the mushroom style right people keep people in the dark and feed them shit um to try to like <laughs> protect your job security in a sense because if you just give everything away then like people will have learned the thing and they won't do it anymore or they'll open their own school and there'll be competition at that point do you feel like yeah. that's a problem i mean yeah. all i mean yeah that exists also and i think a lot of that like i mentioned earlier about uh this era right this mm -hmm. reagan era of taekwondo which later followed by ufc and bjj this neoliberalism that came into martial arts i think that's very much informing martial arts but also to your point about hierarchy that's the confucianistic aspect that was always part of it but you know like eastern philosophy a lot of times they're not so strict about confucianism is different from taoism which is different from buddhism mm. it's very plural mm -hmm. you know so martial arts uh, east asian martial arts definitely informed by taoism and buddhism but also by confucianistic hierarchies and all these like forms and rituals that you have to do mm -hmm. and especially the confucianistic aspect when combined with neoliberalism um i think that's when it becomes even more superpowered okay so since, since you're the lefty amidst the herd of slightly less lefties do you what what kind of elevator pitch do you tend to use or like what kind of arguments do you find are particularly effective when you're i mean i'm curious actually first of all how much time you spend proselytizing you feel like with actual you know like face-to-face -face conversations with people at schools or things like that versus um just doing the podcast and like what uh arguments you feel like you've gotten the most resonance and response to okay so i think uh, i have to give a two-part answer the first part of it is i don't do any proselytizing other than the podcast which even there right it's your choice to download it because um you and i have talked about ethics and the ethics that was implicitly taught to me through martial arts for all these years was consent-based ethics, right? What's the difference between fighting in a cage or a ring mm -hmm. and an assault is consent. Like those people consented to do that. And what happens in martial arts when you spar, you always have to ask for permission. Even in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you have to slap hands and bump fists before you go. Mm -hmm. And 
or you just say, do you want to roll? And people say yes or no. And if they say no, you got to respect that. Consent is huge. It's a huge part of martial arts. So because of that, it's really hard for me to just proselytize or just just barge in and tell people, hey, this is my two cents or here's why you're wrong about this or that. Right. Mm-hmm. That's why even the way I do social media, I often just post on my own thing rather than replying to somebody else's because it, I still get that icky feeling, you know, okay. so uh, my left, my left is much more like, I guess it has that libertarian consent, voluntary aspect to it. Okay, fair enough. So, but yeah, go ahead. Part two. But when, but, but part two, when somebody does ask me about it, you know, and they're like, well, what's the difference between your politics and mine? It sounds the same. I often just use this example of like, close your eyes, right? And imagine a situation where the most amount of people can be helped. With your system, the way you're talking about, let's say, like sticking with, you know, Obamacare Mm -hmm. um, or some kind of, uh, you know, uh, public option plus private option versus just uh, a a single payer like Medicare for all, Mm -hmm. which would actually help more people. You know, forget about who's representing these ideas. Just how many people would get help more? Who in this kind of like Rawlsian, you know, you have the curtain down and you're just thinking about it. And I find that often uh, works well to differentiate. If you just think about total number of people instead of breaking breaking them up into tribes, like a human is a human. Mm -hmm. So you would say for this particular crowd that appeals to identity politics are generally speaking not not very functional um and should be avoided in favor of sort of more universalistic approaches to um ethical uh inducement (laughs) well yeah i think the closing of the eyes whether they really close it or not i think it like cues something in their mind to kind of you know think about it like okay i'm not going to picture actual faces or the representatives of these Mm, ideas uh and i find then that a lot of people are actually much more open to universalism than they thought they were Uh uh-huh that's interesting i think it's just certain people irks them irk them so bad that they can't separate the idea from the person but if you remove the person a lot of times people are very hospitable to the idea fair enough um, so let me ask you this. You think you could get them to be hospitable to someone like Elizabeth Warren? Uh, I know that maybe I'm guessing that you're still hoping that Bernie is going to make something happen here. But I, I also imagine that if he doesn't, you would probably be on board with Elizabeth Warren. Is that fair? I it it could even be Joe Biden. Like I will vote blue no matter <laughs> fair, who. Fair enough. Like I will right. vote in the pri- I will vote in the primaries and I will also vote in the general. And that's the thing, right? As a martial artist, and if I'm just representing lefty martial artists who might be, you know, supporters of Bernie, like the thing we can do, we can multitask. We can revolt and vote at the same time. We don't need to sit out, mm-hmm. right? Like like <laughs> block for primaries, and strike at vote the same for whoever time, you're yeah. gonna vote for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can't block and strike at the same time. It's not mutually exclusive. So um like the, the the type of crowd that uh, I represent or like my Southpaw Facebook group, everybody I've talked to ultimately will vote blue no matter who. Mm-hmm. Because I think as martial artists or people who care about combat sports, they understand uh, tactics and strategies. And they also have a built-in kind of innate Taoism where in a time of action, you can't sit out. <laughs> you have to act in those times, right? And right now is a time of action and you we all have to vote. So mm-hmm. it, it could be Warren. It could I will happily vote for anybody who gets the nomination. And I and everybody I've talked to feels the same way. But in my other world, my real life world in Los Angeles that is very much informed by Hollywood neoliberal like aspiring real estate landlords. <laughs> a lot of the people I know have explicitly told me that if Bernie or Biden get the nomination, they will sit out. Oh. So it's interesting that what I what I see on Twitter is like, you know, Bernie fanatics who say they won't vote. But in L.A. in particular, in real life, I never meet those type of Bernie people in real life. I only meet the other people who say they won't vote for Bernie and they won't uh, vote for Biden. So they want Warren? They want Warren, but if okay. Warren's not the nominee or they want Kamala okay. or they want Pete sure. or they want Pete. Uh-huh. Yeah. But if it's not one of them, then they won't vote. Do you worry about the gender issue? Do you feel like you have a concern about your community, at least in particular, uh, having issues voting for a woman? 
Um, not the communities I'm in. I, I mean, I could see that being a, a problem, period. But from uh, like talking to people, you know, if you join like lefty niche groups, like a lefty workout group, like mm-hmm. the Swolitarian or <laughs> my group, you know, or a, a, a lefty gaming group, group, like the leftist gaming club, a lot of the people there are women. A lot of the people there are trans because these are the only online spaces where they don't get attacked by the bros, right? So because like in the big scheme of things, right? They're marginalized for a reason because they're a very small population. Mm-hmm. But in these lefty niche groups like mine, they have a disproportionate size within them because they all flood these places because it's the only safe space. So they inform a lot of that. So mm-hmm. if you won't vote for Warren because she's a woman, I don't even think you would be in these groups. I'm still stuck on Swolitariat. That's really good. I would, I'm curious <laughs> how many of our listeners are already in the Swolitariat who will, or who will have joined it immediately upon hearing <laughs> This particular story. And the weird thing is when you have a niche group like that, that is explicitly leftist, Mm -hmm. you don't even talk about politics. Mm -hmm. You just Mm -hmm. what what it does is create it it gives permission for leftist moderators to remove anybody from ever attacking other people or saying anything that's not inclusive or or saying reactionary things or or hot takes about, you know, like in my group, female fighters like that wouldn't fly there. Uh-huh. So then we're just talking about the business at hand, which will be MMA or martial arts or in that group, which is just strictly about uh, lifting weights or mm-hmm. in the, the gaming club. They're just talking explicit, explicitly about the game. So if you just want to talk about the thing without all the hot takes, you need leftist moderators. Mm, interesting. Yeah. And I, I like part of me gets a little nervous about it because of the siloing effect. Like, it would be better if we were engaging with these other individuals so that there could be cross-pollination of understanding and, like, more moderation. But having also seen what those groups are often like, I I struggle to say that anyone has to spend their limited time and energy and resources engaging with that at the particular moment because of the state of polarization, especially that the right has gotten to. I mean, you might know this a little bit, right? If you, we're just making Facebook groups or message boards for fun, mm-hmm. it, we're not even volunteers. It's not like a nonprofit, right. you know. It's just, uh, you know, a couple minutes a day. If you we try to do that thing that you're talking about, where it's all these different ideas cross pollinating each other, you would have to make moderation your full time job. <laughs> I don't know if you heard any of the episodes where we talk about Monster Island, but this is a, this is actually something I'm quite familiar with. I've done experiments on this front, and it was impressively disastrous. Um, so yep. yeah, I totally get where you are coming from on that, and it, it makes me nervous. It makes me really nervous for next year. I'm. I think that 2016 is going to look mild compared to the next year. I'm just, I yeah. just think that's good. It like partly just because the rhetoric, especially, I mean, I, I put it primarily on the right. It's sort of, so here, and I don't want to put this as both siderism, but I will say like, there's a lot of catastrophizing language and part of it is justified on certain sides i would argue like there's a lot of genuine fear about things like climate change and that's making people on the left extremely nervous and like angry and anxious and then there's a lot of sort of reactionary politics on the right that i think is far less well justified than the anxiety on the left but it does just seem like everyone is pretty heavily ratcheted up at this point and it doesn't – there doesn't appear to be many release valves for everyone's anxiety and stress. I think that's why, again, Southpaw or your podcast or, like, these niche groups, mm-hmm. like, you know, philosophy or meme groups, it gives us a valve where it's not, like, uh, an escape to a different type of belief, but an escape to something completely unrelated to politics whatsoever. So, mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, when I get fed up with – reading politics on Twitter or what what have you, I go read stuff about mixed martial arts or I read stuff about martial arts in general, right? And a lot of people do that with gaming or lifting weights. So I think um, these niche groups or hobby groups act as that release valve without having to like 
go run away to something um, reactionary. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, th- I definitely think that everyone should immediately take up martial arts. Uh, because especially if society <laughs> collapses and the spoletariat needs you, um, we will be recruiting. So make sure you're ready to go. Um, well, Sam, we're getting close to the end of time here, but I want to get you into our realism, anti-realism lightning round. If uh, Do you have any final thoughts before we get to that? Well, to your point about, what you, uh, about everybody taking martial arts, I think we sometimes get so politically engaged that we forget we're humans first and humans need hobbies. Mm -hmm. They need other shit to think about (laughs) besides just politics. So whether it's martial arts or art or comic books or philosophy, just find another hobby. Good. That's a good point. That was my, that was my addition. Very good. All right. So realism, anti-realism, right? You get to say whether the thing is real or not real. Those are your two options. No hedging. Um, you don't have to define what the words mean, so you can hedge okay. later. Uh, but are you ready? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, is your, is your readiness real? <laughs> uh, no. Okay, good. Not okay, real. Great. Uh, so, the external world. Uh, not real. Okay. Colors. Not real. Phenomenal consciousness. Not real. Qualia. Not real. Okay. Free will. Not real. <laughs> Selves. Not real. Personal identity. Not real. Genders. Not real. <laughs> Race. Not real. Species. Not real. Deflationist. All right. I love it. Uh, uh, mor- uh, morality. Not real. Rights. Not real. A priori knowledge. Not real. A posteriori knowledge. I don't even know what that means, so not real. <laughs> it's empirical knowledge. <laughs> oh, that's definitely not okay. real. <laughs> Propositional attitudes. Not real. <laughs> Ideas. Not real. Modalities. Not real. Gods. Not real. Society. Not real. Numbers. Oh, that's definitely not real. (laughs) Abstract entities. Not real. Fictional characters. Not real. Holes. Not real. Chairs. Not real. (laughs) Sandwiches. Not real. Science. Not real. Natural laws. Not real. Okay, and finally, beauty. Not real. All right. I feel like you've gone full not real on everything. Is that correct? <laughs> you got to become empty and become the wind. It's all just dust in the wind. None of it is That's real. That's good. No, I think you're the first person to stake out the fully, fully not real position. I think Liam was the next closest. He said that only God is real. Um, so congratulations. You you have staked <laughs> out a, a point on the graph that has not been charted yet. okay (laughs) all the way on the extreme of the spectrum uh well done way way to be an extremist um okay so do you want to let folks know where they can find you yes so um you can find me on southpaw you can find that anywhere you listen to podcasts um Make sure it's not Sal Paul with an S, not Sal Paws, because those are different podcasts. It's just Sal Paul. You can find, you will know it's us when you see, you know, cartoon caricatures of me and my co-host. And it's a spoof off of the movie They Live, <laughs> which is a movie about politics and fighting. And then you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Sal Paw Pod. Just search for that. And you can find me on Twitter at Stuff From Sam. Good stuff. It is a very great They Live spoof. And They Live has one of the best fight scenes of all time in it. So I I I appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Sam. This was a lot of fun. Well, thank you. And uh, I will see you back in the internet worlds. In the inter-realm. All right. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thank you so much to all our listeners and especially our patrons for making all of this possible. Thank you to our 20-tier patrons, Jude Law's Canadian accent and existence makes my pussy throb. Good morning, Camp Quest. Jonathan Steele is a great dad fund. And Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. 
And thank you, as always, to our $40 top tier, clearly supports us deeply, Dave Maslich. You all are heroes. We really couldn't do this without you. If you'd like to support the show, uh, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on uh, whatever podcast app you use. Please follow us on Twitter, at ETVPod. And support us financially, if you can, at patreon.com slash embrace the void. We really couldn't do this without you, because remember, you are the void, and the void is you. (laughs) 